breast milk science. It's a thing. And it's our thing. We're Byheart. We're an infant formula company on a mission to get a lot closer to the most super, super food on the planet. Breast milk. Our patented protein blend has more of the important and most abundant proteins found in breast milk. We're the first and only U.S.-made formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. We make our formula in our own factories in Iowa, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, using a small batch manufacturing process that works to preserve the integrity of our ingredients. We ran the largest clinical trial by a new infant formula company in 25 years and clinically proved benefits like easier digestion, less gas, and softer poops versus a leading infant formula. We were the first infant formula company to earn the Clean Label Project Purity Award. And while we've put a lot into Byheart, there's a long list of things you won't see on our ingredient list, like no corn syrup, no maltodextrin, no GMO ingredients, no soy, no palm oil. Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I am Frankie. Unfortunately, I am Sarahless this episode, but the good news is more than making up for it is my special guest today, the incredibly talented, wonderful and successful Louise Candlish. <laughs> Hi. Hi, how are you doing, Louise? Really well, thank you. Yeah, really well. Looking forward to my first glass of wine after this. Oh, you're going to need it after this. <laughs> Putting up with me for a whole whole gold chat. <laughs> thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today. Before we get into the, the silly questions that we have for you, which we've already had a little chat about, uh, some of the uh, more unusual ones, <laughs> I'm going to read a little bit about a, of a bio about you. I mean, I, I imagine anyone listening already knows who you are and your incredible back catalogue of books, but for the benefit of everybody, just so we know exactly where you've come from, not in a creepy way, not your home address, <laughs> we'll, just, we'll go with the general biography. So, Sunday Times bestselling author Louise Candlish grew up in the Midlands town of Northampton and moved to the capital to study English at University College London. She's the author of 16 novels, including her brand new thriller, The Only Suspect, set in 1995 and described by the Daily Mail as a perfect mix of nostalgia and menace. It is published in hardback, ebook, and audio in February 2023. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Louise's number one bestseller, Our House, won the British Book Awards 2019 Crime and Thriller Book of the Year. That is a mouthful, but what an award to win. Uh, <laughs> and is now a smash hit four-part ITV drama starring Martin Compton, Tuppence Middleton and Rupert Penry Jones. And you can watch all of that on ITVX. I actually watched it at the time it aired. Loved that as well. We'll talk about that in a minute too. International bestseller, The Other Passenger, a noir tale of adultery and double crossing set among the Thames River commuters, was Louise's first Richard and Judy book club pick and was long listed for the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year Award 2021. It is now in development for the screen. So you're taking over the television as well at the same time. <laughs> Fantastic. Louise's latest paperback is The Heights, a twisty revenge thriller whose narrator, Ellen, has a strong fear of heights known as high place phenomenon. It is out now in paperback and has also been optioned for TV. Uh, Louise lives in South London uh, with her husband, teenage daughter and red fox Labrador named Bertie. She's also incredibly kind, generous and willing to slum it with the likes of us on this podcast. <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I need to cut that that biography. It's it's too detailed, isn't it? No, it's great. You've got to brag. You've got to show off all your amazing achievements. That's the whole point. So, wow. I mean, that what a what a journey you've been on, and what incredible success you've found, which is you know fantastic. So, how how did you get into writing? Um, just kind of accidentally, I guess. I I was taking a sabbatical from my job as a copywriter. This was sort of the early part of the 21st century when many, many listeners were probably still in school. <laughs> and um, but I was backpacking around Sicily and wow. I hadn't had a, a proper career break, I don't think, since I had um, begun working after university. And I was on my own for the first time, I guess, for, um, you know, two months I was away for. And I just couldn't 
couldn't do it without having a project. So I started writing a novel. And um, and when I got back, I finished the novel and found an agent and that, that novel was published. Wow. Uh, which sounds like a, you know, absolute fairy tale scenario, but, you know, it didn't sell. It was my first taste of, um, you know, disappointment because um, I've had many ups and downs. You've read, you, you've just listed the highlights, but there've been many lowlights as well. So, um, yeah, so it began in a kind of, you know, it's felt quite easy. But um, I was quickly plunged into the reality of um, publishing and writing. Wow. No, I mean, but the fact that you're able even during all that period to write a book is incredibly impressive in itself. I I think sometimes people don't realise just how hard it is to even write a single book, let alone many books that go on to be incredibly successful. So... Yeah, I mean, that was a that was, you know, quite a simple um, plot compared to my the books that that mm. um, your listeners might be more familiar with, like Our House and The Heights and The Other Passenger are very complex and, mm. you know, take a lot of brain power. And often, t- you know, I get tied into knots and feel like I'm losing my mind. Some of those early novels were much simpler and more linear. And so, you know, it was a, a different experience, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to ask, many of the authors we've had on already talked about whether they're a planner or a pantser, that old saying. <laughs> which which one are you? I'm I'm a planner, but I'm not a kind of meticulous planner. Mm. I'm a planner in a, you know, in a loose way. So I'll always know what it is that I want the book to be about. I'll know what the crime is. I'll know, I'll know what, you know, I'll know how this book is going to be sold when it's eventually sold. I'll know what the concept is, the central theme. Um, I might not know the characters yet. I might only know them as sort of shadowy figures waiting to be fleshed out. But um, the plot comes first or the setting or both. Um, and then I will look for my characters to sort of people this world that I want to create. Um, but if I had to go, you know, I'm close to the planning um, end of the spectrum than the pantsing end. And I have, you know, I've written 16 books now and, you know, some wow. of them I've, I've been a lot more free and improvisational than others. And I have found that it saves me time to plan. Yeah. Because you might go off at a tangent and do, you know, scenes that you just absolutely love, but they end up not really um, serving the story that well. And um, for me, they just felt a bit self-indulgent. So I would always have to strip them out. And then it's like, well, why have I spent a week doing that? So um, I do I do find it's it's more efficient to plan. But everyone's different. Oh, my God, the, the stories I hear, you know, they make me make make my hair curl. You know, people literally sitting down with, a, you know, starting a novel without knowing the first thing about it. And yet at the end of it, they have an amazing novel. So, you know, there are different processes, but I think mine's quite boring. It's not boring. <laughs> Clearly it works for you. So that's what matters. And I would imagine when writing complex plots, like you were saying, you know, it's very easy to forget small details or things that may be important. So I imagine an element of planning would make that smoother. Yeah, yeah. And whether you've got multiple subplots Mm. or you've got multiple narrators and each is presenting the um, action from their own point of view. You do, you have to know what that action is mm. because otherwise, you know, you, you, you'll you make a change and it will, you know, the, the rate, it will radiate out. You know, it's that kind of ripple effect is what I'm trying to say, where, you know, you think you're just making a little change, but actually it ends up changing something in in everyone else's scene and everyone else's point of view. So it just is better to know what's going on in the first place. That's not to say that, you know, you can't be struck by inspiration halfway through. And that does happen quite often with a smaller reveal or, um, you know, a subplot. I might, you know, suddenly have a, a flash of inspiration when I'm, you know, halfway through or two thirds of the way through. But the main mechanics of the plot um, I will know in advance, definitely. And so you talked about obviously the characters starting off as shadowy figures, obviously some more than others, perhaps as the plot develops. But do you do you find that you learn about the, the characters as you're writing them? Or do you have like a, a sort of path you want to go down? I'm always really interested to hear about char- character development within people's writing. I definitely get to know them as I go. Um, And so sometimes I'll need to go back to the early scenes with, you know, my new knowledge of them. Um, It it does depend on what voice you're using. So if I'm if I'm writing in the first person, the voice is by far the most important thing for me to get even before the plot. Mm. It needs to sound I need to know what that person thinks in their head and how their voice sounds. And I might not even know what they look like. So someone like Jamie and the other passenger who narrates the entire book Mm. bar one tiny scene right at the end. 
I just I I just got his voice before I'd even really thought about what was going to happen to him in the book. And it, I was very lucky in that his voice came to me very quickly. And then I was away and I was just really excited to have this new friend um, <laughs> in my life. Um, but when there's multiple narrators, it's it's um, it's trickier because you want them to be distinct. Mm. But e- equally, you know, they're they're going to have lots of things in common because they're all my characters. So um, so that takes a little bit more time. And then sometimes you might ditch a narrator. I've had um, situations where I've, I've just ditched a whole strand because that that narrator wasn't adding anything to the story. Wow. So so, yeah, it does depend on um, what narrative device I'm using. I do I do like a sole narrator. I like that intense experience of, you know, sort of, of inhabiting someone else's psyche um, and, you know, hoping it sounds authentic um, when it comes out the other end. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you, you talked about not knowing what your characters look like necessarily, but then now that so many of your books are being optioned for, for the screen, which is amazing. And with our house in particular, you know, they, I think they did a really, really fantastic job with that adaptation in particular. Oh, thank you. How did you feel about seeing actors portray the characters that you know so well and so intimately at this point? Well, it's very weird. And <laughs> the first thing that you learn is that the um, actors are going to be younger than they are in the book. So that's the first thing you've got to sort of come to terms with. And, you know, it's about star power. So in um, in the book of our house, I suppose I always imagined Bram, you know, mm. they're in their, I think they're in their mid 40s. He might be a little bit older. She, um, Fee might be in her early 40s. Um, you know, I thought of them very much as, as middle-aged, but, you know, they've still got a bit of sexual attraction about them. And so to see, you know, incredibly good looking, um, yes. wholesome, <laughs> beautiful, fashionable, 30 somethings mm-hmm. portraying those characters you know but for me it was like oh my god martin copson he's just he's so gorgeous mm. and and um genuine he's you know he's such a nice kind guy and you know he's also in great shape whereas bram is you know he's an absolute mess you know he's he's borderline alcoholic he's he's got all kinds of mental health issues he's a smoker he you know probably doesn't even bother showering he's in such a state mm. so i thought how's how's this gorgeous you know <laughs> national treasure going to portray my broken middle-aged man but you forget that um you know they're incredibly talented actors and so mm. you know the first time i saw martin on screen in you know the first i think i saw some early edited scenes and i just couldn't believe that he just got it mm. he just got it he hadn't even read the book he got it from the script wow um you know that sense of complete desperation and just the sorrow of the character so um so yeah it's um it's it's really fascinating to to see your characters be interpreted by you know people who wouldn't necessarily have been in your head when you were writing um, because I'm always thinking about people looking quite real mm. and actors are you know always better looking than yeah. you know normal civilians um, and they you know they're they're usually in you know they've usually been to the gym and their skin and hair are glowing and yeah. <laughs> they don't really look like you know the characters on the page were you trying to encourage Martin to maybe get a drink problem in the run yeah. up <laughs> to, to filming it's like maybe just but a casual by his social media I think he does enjoy a, yeah. a pint or two <laughs> but yeah I thought he was brilliant and also Tuppence mm. I thought she was inspired casting actually because in many ways Fee was the more important of the two to cast because she's in almost every scene and you know she is the one we're living through and relating to because this terrible crime has happened to her um, and for those who haven't seen it or read it you discover in the first scene that her house has been stolen from her her beautiful double fronter um you know worth millions in south london and you know she's in absolute shock and it's an incredibly hard part to pull off and i loved what she brought to the role i love that she you know to me she's like a sort of liz taylor or audrey hepburn like a classic hollywood mm. actor in the way she looks and that sort of that charisma and i love that she was so beautiful and stylish in every scene and it kind of again it gave her a kind of pathos that she was quite otherly mm. um you know she didn't look like the other mums she was the beautiful one um and it kind of made it it turned it into more of a tragedy that you know this terrible thing had happened to her um because terrible things shouldn't happen to you when you look like Captain <laughs> Middleton. yeah absolutely i assume they wouldn't <laughs> But I think I think that's a really interesting point. And actually, it almost adds to her vulnerability because you're like, surely 
nothing happens to perfect people. Nothing bad would happen to someone that looks like her with the house that she has. The house they use is beautiful as well. Yeah, really yeah, stunning. lovely house. Yeah, yeah, not far from where I live, actually. The house they mm. used for the for the exterior shots, they built the interiors in a, in a studio. Wow. No, I think so. I think it is. I think it. it she did bring that kind of vulnerability. Mm. And, you know, it really is true that uh, and she is a good she's a good looking woman in the book. Um, you know, she is sexy and she is used to things going well for her because you know looks do open doors and um you know she's also from in the book she's from a very solid background she's got probably a little bit of family wealth helping her out you know she has not had to suffer particularly but when you start to peel back the layers of the marriage you realize actually you know she's had a very tough time um bram has not been a perfect husband he hasn't been a perfect father and you know it's it's in a way i i think that that's why that book had such such mass appeal because on the surface it looks like entitled privileged people who've got it all mm. but actually you know there's an enormous amount um, of schadenfreude to be had in that story <laughs> you know seeing just what toxic stuff is going on behind the veneer and you know the same in in the other passenger there's a, I you know I felt like I was I was making the same point in a way that it might look perfect yeah and you might you might have ticked all the boxes of things you're supposed to have achieved and acquired by the time you're a certain age but you know it's never how it looks it's never how it looks you never know what's going on behind closed doors train mm. or otherwise it could yeah. be <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and also you know the fact that we're all vulnerable to mm. outside forces so in, in, the, in both cases you know it's an outside you know criminal element that breaks it apart yeah um, and just finds the chink finds the chink that was already there and worms their way in. I think as well, you write, I would say, obviously they're thrillers, but they're almost like contemporary horror stories. Like the idea <laughs> of your house being sold from under you like that is a very kind of modern, terrifying thing that, you know, identity theft and things like that happen all the time, particularly yeah. in this day and age. So it feels very possible and very real without you without you even realising it could happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're living in that world. Mm. I mean, fraud is escalating, you know, every year it goes up and up and up and we're all you know we all have to be so vigilant mm. and any complacency that you know we may have had you know is that's not a good position to to adopt now um because we're all quite open to to attack yeah and you know i've almost at one point i was really on top of reading press about fraud after our house and and when i was when i was researching and writing it but i can't keep on top of it now because it's you know there's just the fraudsters are always one step ahead always ever evolving absolutely yeah, yeah. you just have to be so careful and particularly where you know there's a high value asset like a house or a car or you know something that costs tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds or even millions mm. you cannot be blasé about your banking and you know the the method of of um, financial transaction, you need to be really vigilant and also have insurance. That's the that's the other thing. Have insurance before you buy a house now, just in case something goes wrong. Very good. Very good lessons all round about writing, <laughs> about insurance. I can't believe I've, I mean, what's so interesting is that when I wrote that book, I was worried that someone else might have got there first because I found it such a compelling mm. crime. As it turned out, you know, it, it was the first, which was great. But nice. I didn't expect, you know, sort of all these years later to still be advising on property crime. And, you know, um, for it to have continued and, you know, got ever more sophisticated. Yeah. Wow. You must have been so chuffed when you realised you were the first one. Like, yes, come on, quickly yeah. finish this book. Get it done. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I really was just thrilled that um, no one had got there because I, the idea came from um, an article in the Daily Mail, you know, which has, and it was on Mail Online, you know, there's tens of millions of, of wow. readers, that website. So, but, you know, that's, I suppose that's what a novelist or, you know, creative person, a storyteller does. They kind of spot the good stuff yeah. and get, you know, get to work on it. Yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of spotting great ideas and good stuff, let's talk about the new book, The Only Suspect, which, as I say, I've started reading absolutely loving. I'm, I'm not as far along as I'd like to be because I have to do annoying work for a living. But 
really, really loving it so far and such an interesting premise. Do you want to give a little overview for the listeners? Yeah, well, this one is is a departure for me in mm. a way. It's got the dual strand that you'll recognise from some of my other books like The Heights and um, Our House. But one is set 25 years ago from the, the mm. present day strand. So it's um, 1995. So we're back in the day, you know, the the, the beginnings of Britpop. Yes. Camden Town, where the characters live in a kind of grubby flat share is the absolute epicenter of cool and yeah there's no mobile phones or you know only someone who's you know whose company had supplied them with an extremely expensive contract would have a mobile phone the characters are young they don't have mobile phones they have pages if Mm -hmm. anything there's freedom there's drinking, there's banter, but obviously this is, you know, this is one of my books. And so there's going to be crime as well. So I think you're, you're kind of lulled into this kind of lovely nostalgic mode, which those who were there at the time will recognize it the way we all operated. Um, you know, the very mocking relationships that um, colleagues and friends had. There was no such no such thing as, you know, as um, holding back in case you offended anyone. Everyone just mocked everyone yeah. um, and partied and drank and smoked indoors, um, et cetera, et cetera. And OJ Simpson trial was on. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that sort of really anchors you in that era. So, yes, the um, the narrator, Rick, is in a new relationship with a very mysterious young woman who works in the same office as him called Marina. And you, you, you followed their relationship probably for about 10 pages before things start to go wrong. <laughs> and then things go very wrong. Yes. Meanwhile, in the present day, we have a character called Alex who tells us quite early on that he's changed his name. And he is living more of the kind of recognisable Louise Candlish affluent suburban lifestyle. He's in a gorgeous little cottage. He's got a lovely wife called Beth. They go to drinks in people's gardens. He's kind of, you know, under the radar. He's not extroverted. He's not the life and soul. So he doesn't on the surface appear to have much in common with the party boys of the 1995 strand. But then um, his wife um, announces that a nature trail is opening behind their house on a disused railway track. And Alex's character changes overnight. He's suddenly very paranoid prowling around. He's, you know, he's an absolute pain in the ass as a husband. (laughs) And he is just a miserable old git, but he's also very anxious. And his wife, Beth, has no idea why. Um, But we, the readers, quickly learn that there's a, a, a pretty horrible secret that he's hiding. Um, or trying to keep and he fears the truth is going to surface <laughs> as this trail is developed it's so ex- and then of course you have to try and figure out what the link is between the two but that's the thing and there's, there's so many you obviously write it incredibly well but like little little clues here and there that you drop in and you're like oh hold on a second but that does that mean he's him and oh yeah, yeah. It's very intriguing it was quite hard to do actually it was um it was one of the one of my books where I really was particularly interested in hearing what the first readers took from it and um, whether or not because there's a big twist. Uh, you know, I will say that there is a there's a there are a few twists, but there's one that I intended to be the big twist that couldn't be guessed you know, or shouldn't be guessed. And so when my agent and her assistants read it, they were the first people to read it. And um, it was really interesting that um, her two assistants both guessed the twist Oh, when they read that first draft. And so I went away and worked on it. And and it's exactly as you say, it's those little details, mm. those little red herrings, those little, you know, these little clues that just seed um, you know, misdirections, I suppose, all of those things that crime writers do. I had to do a few more of them, but without being too obvious. And luckily, it, um, the, the people who read that second version didn't guess. Nice. But they'll always be clever readers. I mean, I think <laughs> readers, readers are much cleverer than authors. And there's always, always a group that, that guess and they're so clever. And I just don't know how they do it. <laughs> Especially crime readers, I think. I think, um, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm always fascinated by crime writers as well to come up with these ingenious ideas and things. But I do think that crime readers probably could solve a lot of cases out there. Internet yeah. sleuthing. thing. We should get on that bandage yeah, together. Yeah, I think so, because mm. they're amateur detectives, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if they apply for, if crime readers, you know, if they apply to the police force, if they wouldn't immediately be promoted to CID. I like to think that for myself <laughs> often that I would just be, be like, you know what, you need to go straight to superintendent yeah. or yeah. do they have that in this country? <laughs> like you've watched a lot of Poirot and uh, you've read a lot of crime books. So <laughs> you can just imagine, can't you, yes. um, police officers, detectives listening to this and going, oh, yeah. my God. God, they're so naive. They must get it all the time. <laughs> Being like, well, I've read quite a few Agatha Christie's, so I think. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, no. yeah, thank you. Very insightful. <laughs> it's interesting what you say about Alex, because obviously he does have that kind of personality change overnight as this nature trail news is coming out. And not only, you know, insult to injury, his wife is partially responsible for this nature trail happening in the first place through her her campaigning and support of it so i find it really interesting the way that you you do the inner monologue versus his outer yes kind yeah. of uh, you know him subtly trying to be like so how about we move shall we just move like yeah. let's move house yeah no absolutely and he he says himself in in one of the first chapters you know he in in a matter of days he's gone from being a you know, devoted husband to a man who can't wait for his <laughs> wife to go out for drinks with her friends so he can go about leading a double life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I suppose it happens very quickly, but you have to, um, you know, as you get to know Alex, you realize that he's been dreading this moment for 25 years. He's lived through all of the possible outcomes of acting the way he did in the mid 90s. And, you know, he, um, as many people do who hide guilt, mm. you know, they, they they often regret that course of action and wish they'd just been, you know, come clean and been punished at the time. And then at least you're free eventually, whereas he just doesn't feel that he's ever going to be free. Yeah. And that does make him a sympathetic character, mm. you know, even though he's, you know, he's obviously done bad things and he's a pain in the arse, as you say. But like, you kind of feel about, oh, God, poor guy. Like, he can't catch a break. <laughs> yeah. Ever. No, absolutely. I love him. I always love my um, male narrators in particular. And I don't know why I just just feel so sorry for them, even though they, you know, in some cases, not necessarily in this case, but in some cases, my narrators, you know, have have killed someone. Mm. Um, But I still always root for them in a way because it's just, you know, they're not psychos. I don't really deal in psychos. Yeah, I, I deal in, you know, ordinary people who should have known better and usually under the influence of alcohol or drugs have made a terrible mistake. Yeah. And I just don't think that, you know, there are many of us who couldn't say that we're not just a few, you know, at some time or another have been just a few steps away from making a terrible mistake. So it feels to me like, you know, I've got a lot of compassion for someone in that position. Yeah, definitely makes them a lot more real. Yeah. Speaking of character, and you've got an interesting cast to choose from here. If you had to be a character from one of your books, who would you be and why? (laughs) Um, I think I probably wouldn't be one of the criminals. I think I'd probably be, maybe I'd be Claire in The Other Passenger. Yeah. So for those who don't know Claire, she is literally what I was just talking about. She's a complacent, entitled, hugely <laughs> successful woman. Um, she can't really understand the notion that she's lucky and that she, you know, was born lucky. She genuinely thinks that everything she's achieved and everything she's got is because she's worked so hard and she's really talented. So she believes in a meritocracy. So she's a classic Blair sort of baby, I guess. And I really like her because I think she's, you know, she's in for a shock. <laughs> <laughs> that Charlotte and Freud that you talked yeah, about. <laughs> yeah. She's a, I think she's just a, a really interesting, recognizable figure who on this again on the surface is you know we would all aspire to be her you know she dresses beautifully and she runs her own company and she's got this gorgeous Georgian townhouse um, on a square by the river and she's you know she feels very modern and she's making friends with a younger couple and um, but no it all goes goes horribly wrong but yeah so I think I'd be Claire I think she'd be fun I think she'd have a good wardrobe yeah oh god definitely <laughs> and, and Tuppence as well if I could take her playing Fee if I could be her I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't say no to yeah. That <laughs> especially for the wardrobe and you know her general appearance would be rather nice yeah no absolutely <laughs> i i agree i wouldn't be alex though alex stressed stresses me oh, out God, I, mean, no. I like him as a, and he's got some good lines and he's funny but 
I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to be living in that way. I wouldn't want to be hiding a terrible secret for 25 years while trying to run a marriage and a career and, you know, go out for Aperol spritzes and pretend you're just a, you know, just to get another guy on the street. Oh, my God. Be exhausting. That would be awful. Yeah. You wonder how many people who you pass every day are harboring these feelings and this guilt that exists within them. Yeah. Loads of people, mm. I think. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Probably about fifty percent. Do you think fifty yeah, percent? I, I don't know. <laughs> I like Probably it. Probably not. Not not quite as bad a secret as Jamie as um Jamie Long, not. Long novel as Alex. Um, but yeah, I think people do. I think you know we're all flawed, aren't we? And we've all we've all committed transgressions of, of one kind or another. I mean, who is perfect? And you know, who is really wholesome? Tuppence Middleton, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty perfect. But no. You're right. And I think it's so rare in real life, you know, arguably, you know, some people in our government are perhaps very Machiavellian. <laughs> and yes. you think, you think surely nobody really is, no, in reality, no one's pure evil. No, no. And I think I'm, I'm not sure actually how Machiavellian our, you know, our cabinet mm. ministers are. I think they might just be a bit stupid and <laughs> yes. not very good at covering their tracks. I think Machiavellian suggests a level of intelligence, intelligence yes. and design that I'm not sure they've got. Mm. I think they're more blunderers, really. Yeah. Um, and I think most of us are. And so, you know, it's quite rare in my books that someone will be devious to the to the extent that they've got it all covered. I mean, you have got a few of them. Mm. I won't say who they are because, you know, it might be yeah. a spoiler if you haven't, haven't read the books. But in our house and in yeah. The Other Passenger, you've got some relatively Machiavellian characters. Yes. Um, but we're normally in the head of someone who is, you know, hapless yeah. or, um, you know, just as I say, makes makes that one mistake that yeah. you know changes everything but even with your kind of more dastardly characters let's say they're not just doing it for the sake of being evil there's often you know there's a there's a motivation of money or you know oh, something yes. behind yeah. it yeah. So, which again you know a lot of people that's probably quite a real thing you know the desperation of needing money and doing things leads you I mean, obviously explicitly for some of your characters in your books it leads you to doing things and turning you into a person perhaps that you don't recognize and it's that that path that people end up going down that changes them. yeah yeah no absolutely um that's that's right there's mm. um the motivation is almost always money yeah. money envy you know the sort of the the all the all the classic sins yeah and um yeah and that, you know that's what makes my books cautionary tales yeah. really because you know what i'm what i'm trying to say is don't do it <laughs> you know don't, just just we can all get to the precipice but you know step back um there's another way through and also once you got everything that you think you want you're you know you're not necessarily going to be satisfied with that so yeah they're they're cautionary tales you know be careful what you wish for it's as simple as that i think yeah absolutely and within the crime genre as a whole some some things are done a bit more than others and there are some sort of tropes you know it, um often you see kind of these these characters that perhaps are all bad and it's you know a bit more on the evil side of things yeah is, is there a particular trope within the crime genre that you're a bit sick off at this point or you like if you read it it puts you off um i think what i'm what i would sigh if it if it comes up is that is the psycho husband or wife, but usually husband, where there have been no clues yeah. in their, you know, their marriage has been perfectly happy. <laughs> and and then, you know, quite late in the day, they're revealed to be psychos. I completely accept it and can't get enough of it if it's a brand new relationship. And, you know, they've sure. rushed into marriage or they've rushed into a relationship because I think that's so common. Yeah. And, you know, that terrible creeping realisation that you maybe should have given it a bit longer before you moved in and there, you know, the signed over half showing. your flat. Yeah. Yeah, the red flags. But I don't like the trope of there being no red flags. Yeah. Um, but we're suddenly supposed to accept that there's been a long term psycho living under the same roof. Yes. So and that you, you do get that more, more often than you'd think. Yeah. Um so um so no I don't really like that. But yeah, but otherwise, you know, the tropes are our lifeblood and it's really <laughs> just a matter of kind of interpreting them in a new way and, and adding a twist. Um, I'm always looking out for unusual relationships. 
um, because, you know, the husband wife thing, which obviously I have done myself multiple times. So I'm certainly not not suggesting I'm above that. And that is a central, you know, uh, brilliant relationship for a thriller. But I do like unusual relationships as well. And so when I was when I was um, planning the heights, you know, I thought long and hard because I knew I wanted to do a kind of feud between two characters. And I thought long and hard about one that I hadn't read that much in fiction. And so, um, you know, this antagonism between the main character, Ellen, and her teenage son's best friend, Kieran, was, you know, that was that felt to me quite underdone in crime fiction. Mm. And so, you know, and I, so I, I look for relationships where I, you know, I want to read them myself. And I feel like I haven't, they haven't been that explored in fiction. But obviously, the marital relationship has been much explored. And um, flatmates, I really like. Mm. I really like a, a flatmate story because, you know, you can be such good friends with someone or even colleagues. And then the moment you live together, you know, all kinds of stuff is comes to the surface. Yeah. So, yeah, no, other, other than the sort of, you know, implausibly psycho husband who previously was lovely. I think I'm I think I'm good with tropes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And it's so true about flatmates as well. I always love you used to get them in magazines a lot. Those story submissions from people when they'd say like my housemate disasters and you get those true stories. They are always fascinating because. Yeah. But like you say, it's that thing of if you, you're moving in with someone you don't really know, chances are it is going to go not the way you plan or expect. Yeah. And it's like in the same way when a serial killer is revealed and they're like, oh, but he was always so nice. And you think maybe on the surface he was nice to you, but maybe the people yeah. you live with and all the things like that, surely nobody's completely blind. But as you yeah, know. no, absolutely. And you've got, I mean, I think you owe it to the reader or if, if you're a TV writer, you owe it to the viewer to have seeded a few doubts about yeah. that character. I, I, I don't like it when... It's just the least obvious person. Yeah. But there was never a single dark look or, um, you know, moment of doubt or there wasn't a single thing in their history or that, you know, they've, they've done in the course of the of the story that could possibly alert you to the fact that there's something slightly odd going on yeah. below the surface. You know, you've got to you've got to have clues. Otherwise, it's not a level playing field. No, and absolutely. <laughs> and, and a level of perfectionism, in a way, it's a red flag in itself because you're like, what, yeah. what is happening here? No, you're too, nobody's that perfect, surely. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very Scooby-Doo, isn't yes. it? It's the mild-mannered janitor. You can pull the mask <laughs> off, you see what's underneath. Absolutely. So you, you've talked a bit about it already, but what do you enjoy most about the writing process and what do you enjoy least about it? I, what I like most is being able to explore how we live now, sort mm. of interpret how we live now. So I love the social commentary element of my books. I love the, you know, the more zeitgeisty themes. Mm. And I like weave, obviously I weave those with more classic things like, you know, the Hitchcockian yes. um, or Barbara Vine style influences. But I really do love being in a position to be able to look around and see what interests me about the culture um, and society and, you know, have a have a little explore of that in my work. So they feel so current to me. And I feel like I'm it's, it's almost therapy, I suppose. It's me trying to understand the world through fiction. So I really love that element of it. And by the same, you know, in the same sort of um, vein, I really love hearing how readers interpret how I've interpreted the world. Um, it's really fascinating to see if um, what a reader takes out of the book is what I intended or if they share my views or, you know, if they're reading the same book that I wrote. Yeah. I find that really fascinating that the, the book having this, you know, it, another life and a different life inside every reader's head. I find that very magical. Mm. Do you read reviews? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And um, I've become very thick skinned, but you know, obviously there's good reviews and bad reviews. And You have lots of great reviews. So <laughs> that does help, I'm sure. But you always get yeah. the odd one here and there, I yeah. bet. Yeah. But we have no, I've, I've learned very recently that the human brain has negative bias. So it tends mm. to sort of scan for negative things. And so, you know, I might look at good reads. Oh my God, that's a, that's <laughs> That's an ordeal of <laughs> Amazon. And, you know, you, you literally scan through the, the reviews and you and it might be five star, five star, five, and then the, your eye will go to the one star. Yeah. And that's the one you pour over. But I've just learned, the, you know, how the process works. And, you know, I've written 16 books, so I don't weep into my pillow <laughs> anymore. I'm quite cool about it all. As you should be. <laughs> and so what, so going back, what don't you enjoy about the writing process? 
What don't I enjoy? Yeah, the weeping into the pillow part aside now that you don't do that anymore. (laughs) I do find that there are stages in the first draft where I just feel overwhelmed with it not being as good as it should be at that stage. And even though I know that it's going to be okay because I know how to pull the you know the rabbit out of the is it a bag or a sleeve or a hat or hat (laughs) pulling a rabbit out of somewhere yeah the rabbits are going to come out of somewhere (laughs) but I do I really hate that moment when you know I'm reading it through and I'm thinking oh god this this isn't that great and um, there's a hell of a lot of work to do and I've only got three months left so that's always a a low point (laughs) but usually I've I've um, sorted it out by the end I think I find finishing things and I find ideas very interesting and exciting and that's that's the bit I love but I find actually getting on and finishing Mm. something quite unenjoyable I also don't like research I mean I, it's all pouring out now I don't read I find research quite boring so I now have my husband do my research he's a professional researcher oh, brilliant um so you know I wouldn't I wouldn't use him if it wasn't actually something that he does anyway well you know legally you're allowed so, and do so <laughs> yes I'm very lucky because I used to find research quite boring and I used to put off writing chapters because I had to do some research first and I would um write the chapters where I didn't have to do any research yeah so yeah I'm not keen on that I I love dialogue. Mm. That's one of my favorite things to do. I like, um, you know, trying to encapsulate someone's character in the way they, they, you know, speak to other people and banter with other people. Yeah. So I'd say it's, it's mostly stuff I love, but there are a few things, um, you know, there were always at the end, there'll be scenes that I've left till the last because I haven't fancied getting my head around some of the research information that I need before I can write it. So anything that involves kind of a technique or a job, I often leave characters' jobs till the last minute because I haven't decided on their jobs. And you'd be amazed how late in the process some of this stuff was um, decided on. That's really interesting. (laughs) So so you you write in a linear way, but then you go back and adjust and add accordingly. I see. I'm always layering always um always going back and redrafting so by the time the first draft goes off you know there'll be scenes that i've maybe tinkered with a hundred times there might be others that have barely had my attention (laughs) so it's kind of it might be quite patchy that first draft but that's why you have lovely editors (laughs) and agents and people who can keep you on the straight and narrow and polish it up well you know the the redrafting process i do enjoy because it's you know i know it's going to be polished yeah it's going to sound great of course Uh, but that first draft is you know doesn't sound great i think actually you're actually doing them all a favor because these people have jobs because of the first draft so thank you louise for giving them work to do yeah no absolutely and oh my god i mean um editors are you know they 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 deserve more kind of Mm. visible credit in a novel i think because um you know i've i've worked with editors who've really helped me see a fantastic plot twist or really helped me you know, eliminate plot holes. Um, and in some cases, you know, have suggested the final little ironic twist. A couple of my books, it's editors who've suggested the the little epilogues that I've included. And they're just genius. And yeah, I'm the one who gets the credit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying here and now that editors are you know, they often have had quite a lot of input in the plotting. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole package, it's not it's not just the publishing. They are really involved in, you know, the development of the story. We've had a few authors on now that have said very much the same thing, you know, and they consider it a team effort, even though yeah. it's one name on the end, you know, on the, on the cover. Yeah. It's a journey and, you, yeah, it takes a village, as they say. Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah. And, um, you know, some books more than others. Mm. Some you just, you know, do work and there's actually quite a light at it. But some, um, you know, including our house, there were probably eight drafts wow. and, you know, was really indebted to my to my editors on that book. Amazing. And so do you read a lot as well while writing all of these incredible books? Do you have time to read much? I don't read as much as I'd like to. And that is um, that's the guilt that I carry as I roam <laughs> the streets is, you know, the pile of uh, proofs that come through the door. And I just don't read as many as I'd like to because I know how important it is to you know get the get those quotes yeah. from established authors particularly for debuts so but I do read but I probably read I don't know one or two books a month so nothing like you know the avid reader that I would be if I wasn't a writer sure um if you see what I mean yeah um, because I'm also avoiding 
you know, my direct rivals because I don't want to, you know, when I'm writing, I save them for my holiday reads. So someone like Lisa Jewell or Ruth Ware or Shari LaPena or Lucy Foley, all of the, all of Erin Kelly, all of those in that, that category of contemporary um, psychological thrillers, I tend to save those for when I'm not writing and they're like my treat or my reward. Um, But I don't read them when I'm writing in case I subconsciously copy. Yeah. I can imagine that's easily done. Yeah. 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 Because you're not, you're you're not intentionally copying no. ever, but you know, as a as a writer, you're always absorbing, you know, all the information that you read, um, and so I just fear it might sort of, you know, come out and and then um, I get in trouble. So I <laughs> so I so I tend to read classics more. Okay. Um, when I'm writing, yeah. What was the last book that you read and loved? Um, a book that I, I don't think it's it's I think it's out next month. We're talking January. No, I think it's out in March. Okay. And um, have you read Strange Sally Diamond? No. By Liz Nugent. It's her new one. So I think it's out in March. If I hope I'm correct in saying that. And um, it's really un, really unusual. It's got a kind of Eleanor Oliphant feel to oh, it, but it's much much darker and crimier. And Sally Diamond is the is the main character and she's you know very very odd character but she and she has quite a dark past and then there's also a kind of you know deeply sinister subplot going on in Australia it's a real you know no holds barred look at damaged people but but has that lovely kind of redemptive quality that Eleanor Oliphant has as well and so I really recommend that I think that's just a you know a really unique book yeah yeah so um that's the last book I read and I'm trying to think what the last classic I read was um, can't remember. I did read reread The Graduate recently. Oh, okay. Which um, I really enjoyed. And I'm always reading my favourites, Tom Wolfe and Margaret Atwood and mm. and um, Evelyn War. All of my my um, tried and tested old favourites. You can't go wrong with those names. Absolutely. Yeah. So now we've come to the point in the podcast where I have to tell you some terrible news now, Louise. I'm really sorry to have to be the one to tell you this, but unfortunately, you've committed a heinous crime. And like one of your characters, you've you made a terrible have mistake. Have I run someone over? Well, this, you tell me. What do you think you've done? <laughs> oh, I I I always live in fear of of knocking someone over in, when I'm driving. Yeah, and I, you know, obviously, you know, we I've I've lived through the horror of a motoring crime with Bram in of our course. house, and I just I just think it's. I remember going on a speed awareness course and being told that it's the one crime that can happen to anyone and can change their life in a matter of 10 seconds if you're speeding and you run someone over you will go to prison whereas if you're not speeding you you know you've got a good chance of of um you know sort of not going not not having a prison sentence but if you are speeding it's game over yeah Um, and yet it's so hard not to speed in you know in london we've got a 20 mile an hour limit now (laughs) it's it's really hard not to speed so yeah i live in fear of um you know, making contact yeah. with a cyclist oh, or, you know, a poor person who just darts out between cars. Yeah. Um, so that's why that's why I'm in in um, in jail. OK, in your... OK. Well, yeah. So that's that's a really good point. It is crazy when you think about the fact we're all just driving around in death machines every day mm, like it's yeah. not a big deal but it's actually terrifying but if we think about yeah. it too much you can't leave the house so it's a weird yeah. dance. no absolutely yeah you just have to drive carefully yes. said the woman with six points on her <laughs> license <laughs> right well unfortunately those six points have caught up with you louise because you have been unfortunately you've you accidentally killed someone i, be, I believe oh, it was God. an accident i know you didn't mean to but unfortunately the jury weren't quite so kind and you've been sentenced to death for it <laughs> Oh my God, am I living in Texas then? Or yeah, something? <laughs> or as I've said to a few people lately, it was so heinous, they actually brought the death penalty back in the UK just for you. <laughs> oh my God. I know, I'm really sorry. It's very, very I'm sad. Still, my heart's starting to beat really fast. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, the silver lining is we're going to make you the death row meal of your dreams. Does that soften the blow somewhat? Oh, that's so, that's such a weird thing, isn't mm. it? The, the, the death row Very. last meal. Gosh. What would yours be though? I think I, you're probably not allowed it, but I think I would ask for like a really nice bottle of wine. You can have a bottle of wine. I I'd, yeah. I think I'd rather have alcohol and kind Just of, get wrecked. you know, <laughs> yes, yeah. 
Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I really would. I'm not sure I could enjoy food. I mean, maybe with the really nice bottle of wine, I might have a pizza or something, but just something for fuel, Mm. but not that you really need fuel at that stage in the game. Yeah, no. I don't think I could enjoy, you know, like a delicious Ottolenghi feast. (laughs) Fair. No, it does take, it does ruin the enjoyment somewhat when you know what's coming after. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. I'd rather blot out the uh, what's to come lots of wine yeah. maybe some pizza what pizza yeah would you go for um gosh i don't know maybe pepperoni classic yeah can't go yeah. wrong <laughs> right, what, do you have anywhere from in particular like a pizza express or a domino's or <laughs> do you have a preference <laughs> i just want to get your order um, right <laughs> i don't know i don't i don't i have a preference maybe oh. yeah maybe it would be pizza express nice. their classic american pizza and maybe i have some extra chili so i'm getting into it why now. not you know <laughs> you're getting an appetite now it's great do you want dough balls as well or do you just keep it to the pizza? No. No, okay. No, thanks. Do I excessive. don't want to vomit <laughs> at the point of um the point of death. It'd be very garlicky as well. It's probably for the best. Yeah. Garlicky buttery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I'll just stick with the pizza. Keep it simple. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've had your meal and then unfortunately you have now been sentenced to death. But it was quick and painless. It's all okay. But one thing we're gonna do to hopefully make it slightly less painful is we're gonna put a book in with you. <laughs> This is like a really twisted Desert Island yeah. disc, isn't it? <laughs> yes, the BBC would not allow this, I'm sure. But what book would you like to be buried with? Well, I think that everyone should be buried with their favourite book, shouldn't they? Mm. Rather than, you know, one that they hated and dashed down. <laughs> Unless you feel like you should be punished for something after. It's not something I've plucked out of the recycling. No. I think it would be, well, my favourite books would be maybe Bonfire of the Vanities Ooh. by Tom Wolfe. That could be one that's a nice big thick one that I could be holding in my in my dead hands. <laughs> I'll let you have a couple if you like as a treat. Yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. Very generous. Um maybe maybe a PG Woodhouse. Ooh. One of the Jeeves nice. collections. Or Brideshead Revisited, always been one of my favourites. I think maybe Brideshead Revisited, actually, yeah. because that that deals with death and it feels quite profound. Yeah. But it's also got the kind of, you know, the humour and the light touches and the kind of sense of beauty yeah. that I would appreciate in the afterlife. And you may approach it in a whole different way once you are dead. So it could be a yeah. whole new meaning for you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'll definitely be enjoying those, you know, Catholic funeral scenes <laughs> a lot more. Yeah. Oh, like what could have been? (laughs) Oh, well, Louise. I love your questions. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. We've had some really interesting answers to that question as well, because some people go down the favourites route. Some people look for instructional guides of how to come back to life. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Fiona Cummins was like about a book about being a vampire, basically, so you could come back to life afterwards. That's superb. Oh, she's very dark. Yeah, she's very, she's very clever, very dark. <laughs> Some people have said their own books. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I wouldn't take my own books. Yeah, you've read those. No, I think that's maybe yeah. I'll, I'll leave those for you know the living to enjoy. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. I guess we could hand them out at the uh, the sentencing yes. <laughs> for, for the for the guests. The final signed copies. Oh, I'm going straight on ebay with mine (laughs) see what i can get for that but louise thank you so much for your time it's been such a pleasure talking to you it's been great fun thank you where can people follow you on social media they can follow me on instagram twitter and facebook fantastic um just just my name i won't i won't run through all the the various (laughs) um handles but um yeah if you just just um search for me you'll find me on those three platforms fantastic thank you so much it's been such a pleasure and for everyone for listening at home you can also follow the Red and Berry podcast on social channels at Instagram and Twitter at Red and Berry podcast. Or if you'd like to send something a bit longer, you can email us at redandburiedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again, Louise. It's been such a pleasure. And we can't wait. I can't wait for the only suspects to be out. Everybody needs to go and order it right this second and have it ready so that when you read this episode, you can enjoy it with an extra poignancy knowing what's coming. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoy and let me know what you think when you when you have read it. Let me know if you guessed the twist. Oh, God. Okay. Exciting. Great. Well, thanks so much, everybody. Thanks for listening and speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Do you like music and do you like podcasts? Chances are you like music podcasts. Take this one, for example. Pick a disc. 
I'm Matt Latham, and every fortnight a guest comes on to Piccadilly to talk about an album for any reason that they want to. They'll talk about the, the album as a whole, we talk about songs, talk about any personal stories about the album, and if they've ever seen the band live, and all, all sorts of other crazy tangents. And if at any point any of that made you want to listen to Disc, then you can find us on your podcast apps of choice, or on the Facebooks and Twitters and Instagram under Disc. We're also on the We Made This Podcast Network on WeMadeThisNetwork.com, and on Twitter at we underscore made this. Goodbye.